Hi, everybody. I am uh, Tony Ganser from 90.3 WCPN. Like Stephanie said, uh, your questions are some of the, the most exciting uh, for us. So if you have something that you want to know more about or we didn't cover in depth, please do come up during the question uh, period. will be nice. Um, first of all, uh, Matthew Wilson, our guest today, maybe can you say a few words about yourself and your expertise? Sure, absolutely. So. I um, am a professor of law at the University of Akron School of Law. Um, one of my areas of expertise is international law. One of my areas of focus is Japanese law. I've been involved in Japan and Asia for about 30 years, um, fluent in Japanese, lived in Japan for about 14 years, spent a better part of the last seven summers in South Korea, have conducted business in, in China and um, around the South Pacific as well, and I'll be in, in China, South Korea, and Japan this summer teaching a whole host of legal topics. Wow. So our conversation today is going to be uh, broadly about Asian judicial systems, and that's, that's a huge topic, and you say, what does that mean? Uh, so we're going we're gonna to narrow in, pull something from the news to begin with. Uh, you may have heard of the name Carlos Ghosn. It's spelled G-H-O-S-N. And this was the chairman of Nissan Corporation. He's Brazilian-born. But uh, he was thrown in jail in Japan. And it's odd to hear about executives being thrown in jail in the United States. Uh, also very rare in Japan. But he could be held for three weeks without having an attorney present to be questioned uh, and not charged as police are just figuring out what they're doing. So right away, you see that this system is very different from what we're used to in the United States. So Matthew, maybe can we start with talking about the Gone case and, and how, uh, kind of what does this illuminate for us about how things go in Japan? Sure. You know, I, I've had a lot of people that have reached out and contacted me business folks, particularly those doing international business, is they have seen what is going on in the press. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background, um, Carlos Ghosn and another executive from Nissan, they were asked by their board of directors to make a visit to Japan for an unscheduled meeting back last year. I believe it was in November. Mm -hmm. And it, as both of them came, what had happened was is the board had decided that they were going to hand over sensitive corporate information about the dealings of these two individuals to the police and the prosecutors. And so as, as they came to Japan thinking this was just another typical business trip, um, the police were waiting for these two high-level executives. And as, as you alluded to, um, Mr. Ghosn, not only is he the chairman and CEO of Nissan, but he also is the chairman and CEO of Renault Corporation out of France. He's Brazilian-born French uh, Lebanese descent, and um, boy, the world just blew up because no one knew anything in the corporate world about how Japanese criminal procedure works, and this idea that you can be arrested but not charged and be detained for up to 23 days before a prosecutor decides whether or not to bring charges or not was not only shocking to, I think, the international business community's conscious, but when they got closer to the end of the 23 days, what happened was, is the prosecutor said, well, we're going to not bring charges on this count, this alleged crime, but we're going to bring another count and investigate him for that as well. So the clock started to run again and again and again. And so Carlos Ghosn was just screaming to the world saying, help me out, this is just reprehensible. I can't believe that this is happening, trying to tap into all of his different contacts around the world, and it didn't work. Hmm. He, and my, my understanding of what they arrested him for was it was tied to his compensation. So Japanese executives, there's a cap on compensation, which I've seen efforts to do that in other countries. When I was in Switzerland, there was a failed effort to do that. But Gohan is accused of finding other ways to compensate himself essentially circumventing Japanese law, but at the same time, there's kind of this corporate coup going on where it looks like company officials are working with the judicial system to make something happen. Is that accurate? There is, and it is accurate. There's a, there's a lot of discussion that's going on in terms of, do we have a conspiracy here? Did Carlos Ghosn's board sell him out? 
They got tired of his power. They got tired of his demands for compensation. And the allegations are such that it appears, at least allegedly, that some compensation was routed to the Middle East through a third party and then cycled back to the tune of, of $10 million. So I think in, in one sense, you have a power play in Japan they don't like the the Japanese executives don't they're not comfortable with what has happened in Japan and and having worked and lived in Japan for 14 years of my life I can tell you culturally to have an executive paid at that level is something that you just don't see mm -hmm. um, there's not a gap between your CEO and the rest of management and your employees like we see here in the United States probably your CEO is only going to be paid 20 times more than your lowest paid employee, where here in the United States, it may be 2,000 to one based on, on what it is. And so I think internally you had the company just saying enough is enough. You had the company working with the police to try and bring him down, to call him over, to get him in, and really to make an example of Carlos Ghosn that if you're going to be in Japan associating with a Japanese company, you better play by Japanese rules as opposed to playing by the rules of another country. You've described some of these huge differences uh, of the Japanese system compared to the U.S. system already, but can you walk us through a little more, like, what would a typical case be? We've already heard you can be held without charge and without representation of an attorney for an extended period of time, and it sounds like indefinitely if they wanted to. Uh, what happens next? What, what are some of the other major differences in the Japanese system to, to our system? Would you go before a judge? Would you go before a jury? What rights do you have? Sure, absolutely. And, and maybe the best place to start, you know, as you talk about the Japanese criminal justice system, one of the things that just turns heads is when I tell folks that the conviction rate in Japan is 99.98%. So if the prosecutor decides to bring charges, there's little if no hope. In fact, um, some of my um, criminal defense colleagues, uh, attorneys um, in Japan, if they ever get a not guilty verdict, they are heroes, not for the day, not for the year, but probably the decade. And, and sure, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it, it truly is remarkable. Now, when you talk to Japanese judges and you ask them about why the conviction rate is so high, they will tell you that it's because the prosecutors will only bring cases that they know with an absolute surety that they can win. And so part of, of the criminal justice system in Japan, they have relied really heavily on confessions. You know, whatever you can do to get a confession. And as someone is arrested and they're detained, they are able to have visitors three visitors per day, but they all have to come at the same time. Any conversation can only last 20 minutes. The conversation has to be conducted in Japanese. So if you're Carlos Ghosn and you don't speak Japanese, that's a problem because they want to listen in on your conversation, right? Uh, and in the course of that, um, the prosecutor needs to make different requests to the judge to make sure that the clock continues to tick. Mm -hmm. So if they're not going to bring charges, they go to the judge and they talk to them about that. Um, if they're going to hold someone for more than three days, actually, they need to get an extension. The prosecutor does from the judge for an additional 10 days to hold them. Bail is something that is a fairly new concept in Japan, and it doesn't happen very often. Uh, Mr. Ghosn, for instance, um, he was required to post bond to the tune of $9 million, the idea being you're a foreigner, you're probably inclined to flee, you have a lot of money on top of that. And um, so we're going we're gonna to hold you. When he was finally released, he was confined to his apartment, had restrictions on use of the internet, who he could talk to, who he could call. And Mr. Ghosn decided to go wild on Twitter, start to criticize the Japanese prosecutors, and, and that did not go over well as they brought an additional charge, came and rearrested him, uh, revoked his, um, his privilege of being at home to get it done. So. Going back to this process, as the Japanese prosecutors, they use this detention period to try and get a confession. While talking to the judge, the judge is unlikely to grant bail unless you have some pretty good defense attorneys. Um, and then as you are working through the process, once you are charged, then you're going to have more access to your attorney. But while you're in a detention center for eight hours a day, 
the prosecutors, the police, can come and actually question the, the person. And if you, you imagine what it would do to a normal person, if, if you were pulled off of the street, you were accused of a crime, and you were detained for 23 days, probably you would lose your job, you wouldn't have money to support your family, your whole world would start to crumble. So even at the end of the day, if the charges were dropped, Imagine what that would do to you, right? Yeah. So with, with this system and the way that it's been set up, this has been around for decades. And some folks back in 2001, well, I guess 1999, 2001, they started to talk about the Japanese criminal justice system and their legal system in general, saying, you know what? It's worked for us. Very safe society. We don't have a lot of crime. Our conviction rate is high. Our courts are great but maybe we ought to look at changing our justice system a little bit more. And so Japanese criminal trials today are much different than even what they were 10 years ago. Japan, they have typically just bench trials where you have a judge that will come and they will try the case. And it's not one judge, typically it's a panel of three judges. You may have someone who's just fresh out of law school, they've just passed the bar exam, they're the brightest of the bright. They can be a judge at the age of 20, wow. 21, 22. So maybe you've got a judge that's part of that panel to do it. But Japan decided about a decade ago that they were going to bring jury trials, or at least quasi-jury trials in certain instances. And mm -hmm. this may be one. Wow. So what is the definition of justice in this system? Is it conviction at all costs? Because to have a conviction rate that high, I have to assume there are false convictions on occasion. Just by statistics, that would happen. So what is the sense of justice in this system? Is it just making sure someone pays for a crime or that the person who committed the crime pays? Exceptional question. And I'm sure the answer to that is going to depend on who you ask. Mm. If you talk to a prosecutor and ask what is justice, they will probably respond that justice is safety. Society being able to walk down the street at any time of night, that's one of the great things about Japan, is it's probably the safest country that I've ever been to. You just don't have the violent crimes that you see elsewhere. And to the prosecutor, it's because the system works. In mm. talking to the judges, and I've had conversations with even members of the Supreme Court, and I've asked them about the high conviction rate, they will tell you, well, justice is getting it right, making sure that we have all of the facts, but making sure that we're 100% accurate. Mm. That's what they'll tell you. They'll say the system has never been broken. If you talk to the defense attorney, they will tell you that justice is just getting a conviction. Because if you get a conviction, that's good enough, regardless of whether or not you have somebody who has been unfairly accused and convicted. And there are, particularly in a system where you have the detention center example that's there, you have forced confessions really to no end. And so it's one of the things that, that has come out in Japan is it's amazing how many people have spent years of their lives in jail because they were just fed up with the detention system. And they were told by a prosecutor that, hey, if you sign this piece of paper, we'll get you back to your family, we'll get you back to your job, we'll get you home, when at the end of the day, what it got them was an additional jail sentence mm -hmm. in a jail for signing a confession that maybe they didn't even know what they were signing at the time. Yeah. To take a, a darker turn for a moment, but Japan is such an honor-based society, and for somebody to be locked up for three weeks at a time being interrogated over and over again, there are suicides that some people just can't take that anymore. And the fact that that is a, um, that's something that's not as rare as, as you would think maybe, how does that fit into this, this explanation of justice? That the streets are safe, but people's livelihoods are, are ruined and they're, they're taking their own lives because they can't deal with it. You know, it's one of those things that I think it's been shrouded in secrecy. When you have a, a safe society for the population in general, that's enough, right? There really has not been an outward discussion in terms of some of these issues that, that you're raising, right? Being unfairly and unjustly accused. Now, that has started to change. Um, back in 1999, Japan as a way to really, um, I guess, revamp or restart um, their struggling economy, 
they decided that they were going to put together a panel of 13 individuals who were going to sit down over the course of two years and do a wholesale look at the not only the criminal justice system, but the entire legal system to maybe make some suggestions, get power out of the hands of the government, out of the prosecutors, out of the police, out of the judges, and let's put power into the hands of the people. And so out of this committee came about 26 different suggestions of what Japan might do to change its legal system. One of them was, believe it or not, they needed more lawyers. Don't have enough lawyers, so when you have people that are um, unfairly accused or even when they're conducting business, if you don't have enough lawyers to represent the interests to move democracy forward, then as a society, we're falling short. So let's encourage the government to facilitate U.S.-style law schools in Japan. Let's increase the bar passage rate. It was like a 2 to 3% passage rate in Japan in terms of, of lawyers. Let's increase that to what we see in the United States in terms of maybe the 80% mark. Um, let's see if we can't engage people in our court system by rolling out jury trials. Japan had jury trials before World War II. The United States came in, drafted Japan's comp um, constitution, actually, but they left out any mention of jury trials. Mm -hmm. As fundamental as that is to the United States, MacArthur and his crew of lawyers, they left out jury trials. So they said, hey, let's get jury trials in this. Let's make it easier to sue. Why, uh, sorry, why? Why did we leave that out? You know, I think a big part of it was the lack of stability at the end of World War II. The United States had just dropped the atomic bombs. Japan had surrendered. Um, the United States really didn't know what was awaiting it as it moved into Japan and tried to stabilize it. And in the drafters' minds, I just don't think there was enough trust in the populace as a whole. Mm. Let's move forward. Let's see what we've got. Maybe Japan will at some point in time revise its constitution. Maybe that's something that can be included. But at the time, I think the drafters were more worried about the emperor and how you would treat the emperor as opposed to how you would treat the populace and jury service. Interesting. So um, what this system in Japan is similar in some ways to other systems we see in South Korea, uh, in Taiwan, uh, to, to an extent in China, but that's a whole other thing. We'll get to that later. I wonder, is, is the common thread between these systems in these countries government control and, and kind of a prosecution-focused judicial system instead of a system to actually adjudicate a case and find out what is right and what is wrong. It's mostly just, you know, punish someone. Yeah, you know, it's extremely interesting when you look at the United States, which, you know, we have the right to jury trial that's guaranteed in the Constitution, right? We have the Sixth Amendment, which guarantees the right to jury trial in criminal settings. The Seventh Amendment, we have civil trials where you have the right to jury trial that, that is guaranteed there. State constitutions have it as well. Um, but the United States really has been an anomaly on the world stage in terms of lay adjudication, right? Citizen judges. You have other common law countries. UK, you know, Canada, different places like that would have juries, but really this concept of having individuals involved as judges was this foreign concept. And Japan, as part of this greater discussion, not about human rights, not about unfair prosecutions or coerced confessions, but as part of a bigger discussion of how do we jumpstart our economy, these 13 individuals thought we need to have jury participation. Now, as this was happening between 1999 and 2001, and then the Japanese parliament, it's called the Diet, by the way, um, interesting name, the Diet passed this idea of jury trials. You had other countries in Asia that you alluded to that went, well, if Japan is looking at lay participation, citizen involvement in the judicial system as being something that's important, maybe we ought to look into this as well. And so, South Korea, they decided to start to look at juries as well. Now, South Korea was different because South Korea, unlike Japan, really has not had that stable background. Um, and it, it's government, it's business, it's really kind of been the wild, wild west of Asia, I think, in, in many, many respects. 
South Korea, there's not a lot of trust in the criminal justice system. In fact, the government has used this as a sword to unfairly arrest, convict, and even execute folks who did not commit crimes. Mm. And so, as you had Korea looking at this, it was more, well, we don't need this to jumpstart our economy. The populace as a whole was saying, we need citizen involvement in trials because we don't trust the government. We don't trust the courts. The courts are corrupt. And so that was the push that you had that came out of South Korea. At the same time, believe it or not, you know, Japan and South Korea being the democracies that they are, China was watching what was going on. And as a communist society, they're like, well, if Japan's going to have a jury trial or jury system, at least, you know, and it's a mix of the US and the European model. If Korea is going to have a jury trial system, which is more akin to the U.S., but it's an advisory system, well, geez, we want a jury system too. And so a lot of people don't know that in China, they actually have jury trials and they continue to, to modify and try and enhance the level of civic engagement in the judiciary in China, believe it or not. Taiwan, um, as they have looked at this, they're still debating because they've seen Japan has it, South Korea has it. They're not perfect systems. China has it, well, maybe we should get jury trials as well. And so there's a push going on in Taiwan to try and get on the jury train. And then Hong Kong, being a former um, possession of the United Kingdom, they've had a jury trial system for a long period of time. So you've got all of these things that are spinning in Asia that have heightened international interest. And so now this jury, this talk of juries and the benefits that you have with juries it's now spreading to different parts of Europe that haven't had juries before, different parts of South America, um, Argentina, for instance, they just adopted a jury trial system. And it's been interesting as the US jury trial system increasingly comes under scrutiny and attack, and we're having fewer jury trials here in the United States, how in Asia in particular and elsewhere, at least there's this push to let's get the citizenry involved. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but some of how you describe this, it, it brings to my mind fake or fixed elections that autocrats use to justify whatever they want to do anyway. And when we use the term jury trial in the United States context, we think of one thing. We think of an actual fair fight, more or less, mm -hmm. uh, to have a jury of your peers and protections of a judge who's going to follow certain rules and protect your rights as a person. But in your description of, of these reforms and just introducing juries, it seems like it, it's something that's in vogue and, and it's being used to placate people who are unhappy with serious dysfunction in these systems. Is that too far or? No, you know, I, I think, you know, you're alluding to a lot of things that, I, that are at play here, right? And, and when you have a system that's in place and when the government doesn't think that the system's broken, and there's a proposal in terms of what you might do to change, right, or enhance or improve that um, system, you're going to get into a point where you've got this tension. And how do you break the tension? For instance, in Japan, when this idea of a jury came out, the Bar Association said, well, geez, we think the US model is the model that is best. If you're really going to put power in the hands of the people, you need to do a US style jury where it's the citizens that will be the primary decision makers with the judge playing a complementary role, overseeing it, determining the law, the jury will do the facts. The judiciary at the time said, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, our system isn't broken. Why would we put power in the hands of the people? And so the Supreme Court actively was lobbying the legislature saying, you can't do this. You need to step back, re-examine, look around the world and see what other models are out there. So what happened was, is Japan adopted what is known as a lay judge system that is comprised of a panel of nine. All of these individuals sit at the bench. So you'll have three professional judges and then you'll have six citizens who will become citizen judges and all nine of them sit across the panel and the idea is that they have the same amount of power. The citizen judges are able to ask questions of the witnesses. Um, they're able to um, ask the victim for, for statements. Now it all has to go through the presiding judge. But it's interesting to see 
how they brought some of the characteristics of a U.S. system. You're selected to a jury, you serve once, but they have the European model where you have professional judges and lay judges serving together. Mm -hmm. Now, a big part of that, like you said, is one would think that maybe the conclusion is going to be fixed. If you have certain number of professional judges and they're in the jury deliberation room deliberating together with the citizen judges, how in the world is a citizen going to stand up to a judge and say, your honor, I think that you have it wrong. I think that this person is not guilty. Judge is going to turn around and say, I've seen this 10,000 times. How can you question my authority? And one of the things about Japan, going back to being an honorable society is, is that the level of respect for judges and attorneys is off the chart. And particularly where you had a bar passage rate of two or 3%, when you find out that somebody's a judge or a lawyer, you get the oohs and the ahs. You must be a lot smarter than I am, right? So as you look at what impact the jury system has had, or this lay judge system in Japan, there's a lot of debate because the conviction rate really has not changed very much at all. You've got deliberations that are going on behind closed doors and the jurors can't talk about it externally or they're subject to fines and imprisonment. I mean, that's kind of a tall order in terms of, of where you are. And so if you think of that on its face, it seems like it's fixed, but what I've seen in Japan is there are so many indirect benefits to this change in citizen involvement that I don't think were anticipated, that the system itself has become a lot stronger and a lot better. People before would not have ever talked about Carlos Ghosn and his situation. They wouldn't have known what was going on, but because of the scrutiny and the publicity and the, the fact that people are actually serving on these lay judge things, the level of discourse has grown. Now, Korea is a different situation because they went more on the U.S. side. They've got juries of either five, seven, or nine. But Korea, not trusting the citizenry, they decided that they were going to make advisory juries. So a jury will, will hear the case. They'll determine the facts. But if the judge disagrees, they don't have to accept anything that the jury said. And so you have an advisory jury. Also, it's not mandatory. So a defendant has to opt in as opposed to having certain cases automatically go to the jury. The defendant actually has to opt into it. And so as you look at South Korea, in 2008, they had their first jury trial. The criminal defense attorneys, they're like, well, why would we try the case to a jury when we need to convince nine people when the judge might come out on the opposite end anyway. It's going to be a lot of work. We never dreamed of trying a case to a jury to begin with. We don't know how to try a case. And so as they're talking to their clients, only 5% of the criminal defendants who were eligible for jury trials ever asked for a jury trial wow. to begin with. And over the last five years, well, I guess it's 10 now since it's actually been into play, Jury trials have not been in vogue in South Korea because of this advisory role. And so it's down to only 1% of all the criminal cases that are eligible to go to a jury, go to a jury in South Korea. The judges are dismissing it. The defense attorneys are dismissing it. But the interesting thing about Korea that I just don't understand is, is cases that are tried in front of a jury, the conviction rate in South Korea is 90%. Contrasting that with a case that's tried in front of a judge or a panel of judges, the conviction rate is 97%. So the likelihood that you're going to be found not guilty goes up. But what we've seen in South Korea and Japan is, is typically when a jury convicts, the sentence that they recommend is actually harsher than what the professional judges have been imposing from a sentencing standpoint. Are there two speed justice systems for example, are, are foreigners judged by a different rubric than uh, residents and, and citizens of these countries, or does it depend on the situation and how much money you have, what your annual bonus is if you're an auto executive? Like, what, what goes into what type of judicial experience you're going to get? Let, let's stay with Japan, maybe we've talked you know, about the, the, the textbook answer is foreigners and citizens are treated the same. 
I mean, the, right. the, the reality <laughs> of it um, is that it's completely different. Um, and, and I can tell you, you know, having lived in Japan for a while, um, there was one neighborhood that I was actually working in and they had a, a rash of bicycle thefts. For Japan, that was pretty big, that bicycles were actually being stolen and it was rampant in the neighborhood. And so magically, these signs started to go up that were put on the telephone poles about stop the foreigners, report them when you see somebody stealing bikes. I mean, there was just a natural assumption there that if somebody was stealing the bikes, it had to be the foreigners that were stealing the bikes. It wasn't the Japanese that were actually doing it. Did you take the bikes? <sighs> I didn't, but... Okay. One of my students was really drunk one night, accidentally got on a bike, and boy, that turned into an ordeal. Oh, so <laughs> You have the right to counsel. You don't have to answer that in this country. Unfortunately, <laughs> I couldn't give any counsel yeah. you know, to, to my student at the time. But you know, as, as you look, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I used to take my, um, my law students on tours of a Japanese prison. You know, we were able to, to get in and actually see behind the scenes, and they would allow us to go in to the prison where the foreigners were kept. And it was interesting because as we were doing that tour, the, the warden pointed out to us that the foreigners actually had better quarters inside of the prison than the Japanese did. Mm. And that they were kind enough to pipe in armed forces radio to the foreigners as a special consideration. Mm. And so that should have made them you know, happier in terms of, of what it was. And so you know, I, I think in terms of, of what I have seen in the country, um, if, if you're a foreigner, if you get caught, the chances that prosecution is going to happen are incredibly high. Um, chances of conviction, 99.9%, and you're not, never coming back into that country again. Hmm. It's interesting you say that, that so many countries are looking to the U.S. as a model for what they want to do or, or getting ideas because there are so many holes in our own system, and we're still trying to reform our system and when you hear about other countries putting into place what we consider basic things like juries and, and more rights for individuals and, and not uh, you know, being convicted before being tried, uh, it's, it's hard to see progress, I guess, from our vantage point, that we, we have a privileged position and we're looking on and we can poke holes in, in what they're doing. But can you put that in context for us how difficult it really is to move the needle on a judicial system and really see the effects of reform. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, having lived overseas, particularly in Asia, I mean, the Asian way of doing things oftentimes is, let's look at the issue that we have here in our own country and let's do a survey of the entire world and see what's out there. And naturally, they're going to start in the United States, mm -hmm. but then they're going to branch out and see what Europe has done. They're going to look and see what Australia has done. They're going to look and see what other countries have done. Then they'll come back together in a committee setting and start to talk about, you know what, I like this aspect of the U.S., but I don't like that aspect. So let's adopt this part. I like this in terms of what Germany and Austria are doing, so let's bring that in. And it becomes this amalgamation of different principles and concepts and ideas from around the world. Whereas here in the United States, I think oftentimes we're very insular. We don't look outward to see what is going on in other countries, what's been tested, what hasn't been tested. And you know, there's so much that we can learn. As an educator, I mean, that's part of, of really my goal in life is let me expose students so what goes on in Asia and other countries, whether it's through a study abroad or through a class that's offered here in Cleveland or in Akron, and say, look, there's some really, really great ideas out there. Let's see if we can't move it forward. One of the things in Korea that they do that I absolutely love with, with jury trials is they actually, as a juror will walk in here in the United States, really, they're in the dark. You know, maybe you've seen things on TV. Maybe you've read a book about it. But as you walk in, you're asked questions in terms of voir dire, and then we're going to select you, we're going to put you in a box, and then we're going to have you just listen. And once you're done listening, oh, and by the way, don't talk while you're just listening, right? Don't look anything up. We're going to have you, once it gets done, get into a room, and then you can start to talk about what happened. South Korea, what they have done is, is when you walk into the court, 
the judge will hand you a book that talks about the entire process that you're going to go through. It talks about the start time of the trial, the anticipated end time of the trial. It'll give you a summary of, of what you're going to hear, what's going to be said. You are allowed to take notes. You're allowed to ask questions. The lawyers and the judges get together and put together almost this guide so that as the trial's going along, they've at least been subject to what it's going, what's going to happen, what they're going to see. They're able to talk as the trial's going on. They've got access to the judge after the fact. And I'm not saying this is perfect, but as I was looking at that, I went, wow, you know, there might be a lot of merit to us looking to do that here in the United States. How you would move the needle forward in the U.S., though, particularly with our legislative machinery and the challenges that we face in that realm is very difficult. Japan was almost like, put people in a room, come up with some ideas, we're going to adopt them all, we're going to just rip that band-aid off and we're going to make it happen. But Japan's done that time and time again where they need to jumpstart their economy, they need to catch up with the Western world, they're going to just do it all at once, where in the United States, we do it piecemeal and so it's much, much more difficult to do than what we're seeing in Asia. Hmm. I do want to open it up for your questions. If you have a question, feel free to come up to this microphone and ask it, and uh, we will do our best to answer. While we're uh, waiting for folks to come up, um, you know, you talk about Japan being able to jam things through. It's, it's kind of the same idea with, with China, too, because the party can pretty much do whatever it w wants, right, in well, terms of reform. It, it can, you know, and, and China is, because you don't have your democracy, you don't have your checks and balances. Yeah. It really is whatever the party wants to do. And, and China, just with its communist nature, oftentimes it has been, well, if the rest of the world's doing it, we want to play in the world sandbox. We want at least it to appear like right. our country is similar to what everybody else is doing. And so, hey, let's throw juries into the mix in China as well. Hmm. Okay. First question, please. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'll begin. I am not a lawyer. Um, Neither am but I. I. But I worked for a company uh, in this area that did a lot of business in Japan. And at one point, our Bengoshi, our lawyer in Japan, was recommending that we um, sue our com a competitor, a Japanese competitor. And I, I just for a clarification, he, it was very foggy to me. But he said, we don't have, and I may be wrong, we don't have discovery here. We don't have case history or case law. So it's basically you go to the judge, explain your point of view, the other people will do theirs, and if you persuade the judge, you win. So could you maybe clarify how that system might have worked? This would have been 2000, something like that? Abs absolutely. Okay. Thank you. So no, I appreciate the question. Um, and, and your Bengoshi, your lawyer, was absolutely right. Um, now, discovery and, and civil procedure and things like that, those were part of the reforms. In fact, to give you an example of just one of the reforms, in Japan, up until 2000, 2003 or so, if you wanted to file a lawsuit, the amount of money that you needed to pay to the court as a filing fee depended on the amount of damages that you were going to claim. So if you went into court and you claimed $25 million worth of damages, your filing fee was probably going to be about $150,000, which in essence closes the courtroom door to folks who, who don't have money. From a procedural standpoint, what happens is, is in the United States, we have a system that is known as an adversarial system, where both parties will hire lawyers, and the lawyers in court and in discovery, right, leading up to trial, they'll go back and forth and they'll fight. They will provide you with zealous representation and try and get you everything that you're entitled to. They'll go to court and they'll present your case. In Japan and other civil law countries, it's what's known as an inquisitorial system, where it really depends on the judge. The, the lawyers, in many respects, are spectators when you walk into a hearing in court because the judge is the one that's going to ask questions. The judge is the one that is going to order a party to produce certain documents, whereas attorneys here in the United States, they have the authority to do that. In Japan, they don't. And so that's one of the challenges with jury systems is the judges have all the power. They've been asking all of the questions. And to have the judges give that up 
for the betterment of society is a very, very difficult sell. But that's what you encountered. And what also that does and the impact it has is when you have the judges asking the questions and they've got hundreds and hundreds of cases, they need to read through the materials so that they can prepare the questions. So what will happen instead of having just a trial that will be consecutive days until it's done, you'll have a hearing today. Your next hearing will be in six weeks. And then they'll go back and they'll ask some additional questions and then your next hearing will be in another six weeks. And then you'll come back and so it really makes for long trials. So part of my push is I actually think the jury system in Japan has done such a good job changing the procedural standpoint that I've been pushing that Japan actually take it into the civil realm and do lay participation there as well to change some of the things that you encountered. Hmm. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Next question, young man. Yeah. Yes. Um, you, you touched on some of this, but, but to explore it a little more, in terms of where this push for citizen participation is coming from, um, how much of it is pressure coming from either the U.S. or the EU or the IMF and the World Bank to get more in line with international standards? How much of it is coming from um, popular culture in terms of U.S. and British t television and movies? You, the, the populace are seeing that and are seeing a different system versus how much of it is, is just sort of pure internal efforts at reform on jurisprudence? Yeah, great, great questions. Um, it depends on the country that you're in. I mean, Japan was really interesting because there really was no public call for juries or for greater civic participation. I mean, there really was none. It was, I mean, the defense bar, because they always lose, right? They have been calling for juries forever because they couldn't do any worse than they were doing with the judges. Um, but there never was this populist movement. There were no marches in the streets. It wasn't, okay, there's a travesty that's happened. There, the, the media and press were starting to call for it a little bit because they were finding out about forced confessions and wrongful convictions. And so there were some issues that were there, but really it was this, group of 13 that said, hey, this is one way that we can use to jumpstart the economy. And then boom, Japan just decided that they were going to invest millions and millions and millions of dollars in rolling this out. Now, once it happened, then I think the Japanese started to look at what was going on in the United States. And there were talk about the jury movies that we have and different things that were there. And it's interesting in Japan, they came up with a jury video game. Um, they have jury um, animation, you know, jury anime. Um, the prime minister, they, they love um, mascots. And so the mascot of the jury trial system is a parrot. And the prime minister even dressed up as a parrot and started to, to walk around, um, you know, to, to promote this, to do it. So it really was almost, it, it was just this select group. In Korea, by contrast, it was Korea looking at Japan and it was the populace in Korea going, the system is corrupt, we need citizen participation, let's do juries. And so you saw it was much, much more vocal in Korea. In China, it came from the government. And I think, it, again, it was looking at Japan and what Japan was doing, saying, well, if they're going to have a jury, well, we need to have a jury too. And it's all these countries putting their own different spins on it. So it's been really interesting. You would think in the United States, in our democracy, there would need to be kind of a push from the people, maybe the media jumping in as well, to rally the troops. You didn't really see that anywhere outside of Korea. Thank you. Uh, th thanks, thanks very much. I want to ask you, I want to press you, I want to ask you a comparative question. Great. Because there's two things that you said that really struck. One, when you, when you opened, you said that, that, in, that in general, this differential between pay scales in Japan is much different than in the U.S. So we would call that massive inequality in the U.S. compared. Right. But the other one was this idea, and I think it's a very American idea, that the jury system that we have now is somehow power to the people. Mm -hmm. But yet we're sitting here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're three white guys talking. Can we really say that our jury, that our criminal justice system in the United States is equal and that, that we should be telling the rest of the world to adopt something? Because if we, and I, and I imagine that in Korea and in Japan, public opinion polls of their justice system are far higher than they are in this country because we have very low public opinion of our justice system. Can you 
can you like untangle that a little bit? Sure. Like, like yeah. if, if our jury system really is power to the people, what's, then what's going on here where clearly most Americans don't believe that, but yet Koreans and Japanese somehow believe that their system is more equitable, but yet we're telling them that they need to adopt some sort of thing in our system that yet's not generating equality. Because I think we, sometimes we talk about other countries as if we're the exemplar and that we're doing better than they are. That's not really true, is it? Well, and, and let me unwind this a little bit and start with, and it actually goes back to the previous question in terms of, of why would these countries jump into this realm of, of juries, whether they're juries or quasi-juries or whatever they are. And, and there really wasn't the United States telling any of these countries that, hey, we've got a great jury system, you need to jump into this realm and do it. It was actually the reverse of these countries going, okay, we need to find a way to put more power into the hands of the people. Get it out of the government. In Korea's case, well, our judiciary, we believe, is not doing its job. It's corrupt. In Japan, the belief that, well, our jury, well, our judicial system is great, it's near perfect, we respect it, but to jumpstart our economy, which is really interesting, right, we need to find a way to involve people more. We need to put the power back in the hands of the people. So this underlying current is, is we're not going to delegate this power to the government that people do need to be involved. And, you know, as you talk about juries versus judges, right, if you've got a judge, they're drawing their paycheck from the government, they're beholden to the government. You know, if you ever wanted to, if you ever believe that the government misbehaves, you know, you don't want somebody drawing their paycheck from the government and, you know, then having to walk into court and actually rule against that, that entity that's there as well, right? So I think underlying the idea is, if the people are involved, the eyes are going to be there. If something is happening, a malfeasance, the system isn't working well, those people that are involved through jury service are going to be able to speak up and they're going to be able to say something. In a civil realm, similarly, if you've got the corporate power and the things that are going on there, and let's say that you've got shady dealings that are going, at least if you've got individuals sitting in a jury box or sitting together with a panel of judges, maybe they'll see something, they'll hear something, that will get out and that will shape the discussion and you'll be able to change things as opposed to backroom deals being cut to get it done. So I don't know if that unwinds it a little bit for you, but you know the idea is in a democracy, you need to have people that are engaged as much as possible so that you are preventing the corruption, so that you're making sure that government and folks in the civil world don't get out of hand and that you have that additional check. Whether that check works or not, that becomes a separate question. I think in the case of Korea, they're struggling with that right now because it hasn't been the check that they had envisioned. I think Japan, at least for those people that are going in and participating in the jury, they're going, wow, this was probably one of the best experiences that I've ever had. I learned so much. This makes me want to go out and vote. This makes me want to go out and do it again. I mean, the level of satisfaction in the Japanese jury system is off the charts. Whereas in Korea, you're not seeing that as much. And then the issues that we have here in the United States, boy, that could be another three-hour talk. Thank you. So actually following up on that question, so I just wanted to push back on the notion again that the US system is somehow far superior to the Japanese system because of these differences, which actually are not such huge differences. So you mentioned, for example, the conviction rate in Japan, which is like 99%. Well, guess what? In the United States, we have a plea bargain rate of like 98%. We right? And many people end up taking the plea even though they're not actually guilty of the crimes that they've been accused of. In the United States, you mentioned like no bail in Japan. In the United States, many jurisdictions have bail systems which are based on your financial situation. They're not based on the gravity of the crime that you're accused of, resulting in a situation that very wealthy people can often po post bond and get out of jail, whereas poor people, even if they're accused of a very minor crime, might be sitting in jail for, for a long time. And then you also mentioned this notion that in Japan you might have 21-year-old 20, judges. I just wanted to say that in the United States, while we don't have 21-year-old judges, I would argue that at the state level, we have many judges who are really not very well qualified for the job. You know, here in Cuyahoga County, we have elections. How many people, when you take, when you get that ballot, when you see names of judicial candidates, how many people actually know who's qualified and who's not? Most people don't. And I would say that recently, at the federal level, we've seen judges 
appointed who haven't really been qualified. And so just following up on, on, on Pete's point, um, you know, and, you know if, you, if you've listened to the Serial podcast, you would know that our local justice system is far from, mm -hmm. from good. Um, and so I, I would just, you know, again, just because the system is different, I don't think it necessarily means that it's that much worse because I think our system, although on paper we have all these protections, I think that our system actually doesn't function as well. Oh, I, and great points, and I absolutely agree. You know, it's one of those things as you talk about the comparative nature of it, I think this is what is so fascinating when you have other countries that are inviting themselves to look at our system. And they look at the good and the bad and the ugly, and they can see it. And they're like, okay, so we see some good concepts here. Let's grab these good concepts, see if we can get these to work within our society. We're seeing the bad. Well, we don't want the bad, and certainly we don't want the ugly. And it really leads to some fascinating conversations in terms of what it is. And it goes back to one of the points that I made about Japan, right? The citizenry itself, as they looked at their judicial system, they're content. They're not riding in the streets. They're not asking for change. It's the government that's going, well, there's some good things that we have discovered that we're seeing overseas. Let's try them, but we're going to put our own spin on these things to see if it actually works. And you know, kudos to those countries for trying right, something new and trying to extract and trying to improve. I think here in this country, as you allude to, there are problems that need to be addressed. right? And how do you do that? You mentioned judicial elections. I mean, personally, I have an issue with elections for judges. I mean, it was the way that I was raised. I think it's part of, of what I could, I've seen here in the United States as a trial attorney myself. Korea, for instance, they started to talk about, well, in the US, they elect judges. Maybe we should look at that as one way to put power in the hands of the people. And the Koreans looked at that and they said, we don't like that. You know, we don't like the results of what we've seen in the US in terms of election of judges. So we're not going to do it. And they were talking about it at both the local level and even at the Supreme Court level to try and do elections that were there as well. Japan would never do elections. I mean, it's like we want to get the smartest of the smartest, the bright of the bright. So when you pass the bar exam, we're going to put you in a judicial training institute where you have all of the attorneys, that, all the future attorneys that are there. And then we're going to go to the top 10% of that class and we're going to say, you know what? You're so good, we want you to be a judge. And then they'll pull the judges out. And then the next group is prosecutors. So they go to the prosecutors and they say, you're so good, we want you to be a prosecutor. And then everybody that's left goes out and they go into private practice. Now you have the ability to say, I don't want to be a judge, or I don't want to be a prosecutor, I want to go into private practice, but it's different, but that doesn't mean that the way that we do it is better, or the way that Japan does it is wrong. And I mean, that's part of the reason why I've lived in Japan for 14 years of my life, is because they do so many things right. But as you look, going back to Carlos Ghosn's trial, if you asked him what Japan did right, I mean, just look at his tweets, he will tell you, you know, having been in jail now for six months without having real access to attorneys that, boy, the system certainly isn't working for him. Um, and, you know, he still is waiting to see exactly what he is going to be accused of and when he's going to get his day in court. Thank you. Two more questions. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I had a um, question about a debate that's come up in the United States over whether we should know a lot about judges or know very little about judges. And... Um, a good number of researchers are looking at the role that emotion plays in judicial decisions and the ways in which um, they, uh, you know, how they feel affects their sentencing guidelines and that sort of thing. And that it's called for more and more information about judges' backgrounds and how judges think and so forth. And that stands in stark contrast to the way it was maybe 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago when judges were expected to be sort of withdrawn or sort of behind the curtain. Um, living, you know, making rulings from on high, and I'm wondering if that kind of debate also exists in Japan, if there's the same kind of concern about the role that emotion play, if there are calls for more disclosure about judges' backgrounds, um, how they make decisions, and that sort of thing. Thanks. Great question. So in, in terms of, of judges' backgrounds, and it's, it's really interesting that we're going there and we're talking about that, right? And, and if you... Listen to me talk. If you read some of my writings, you'll find out I'm a huge proponent of juries. And part of the reason why is, is when you have a group of individuals, you're able to overcome, I think, a lot of the emotion that one individual 
upon which everything is going to rest has to deal with things, whether it's sentencing, whether it's you know, even paying attention. Scientific studies show that one individual, as they're listening to a trial, they're only going to remember 50% of what they hear. In contrast, if you've got a jury, the studies have shown that collectively, if you put that jury in a room, they're going to remember about 95% of what was said that was there as well. So you know, on, the, on the emotion side, if you've got a jury, potentially you're pulling the emotion out particularly if you've got a Japan-type thing where you've got three professional judges that are balanced by six citizen judges and they're working together in a panel of nine. In Japan, there really hasn't been a lot of talk about emotion, judges. A lot of that is because their system is just different. And it's not that it's wrong, but what they do is, in Japan, they've got a national system as opposed to a federal system like we have. You get a judicial appointment, they will, to keep the judges fresh, transfer them every three years. So they'll transfer them, they'll be together with two other judges on a panel of three, and so collectively, you've got the retention of the information that you're hearing, you've got the balance on the emotional side, and if there's issues, then you end up getting transferred to some type of a different jurisdiction. And so that's how Japan has dealt with it. Interestingly, their Supreme Court, if we want to jump to that level even, um, you have a mandatory retirement age on their Supreme Court of 70. Just about everybody that gets appointed to the Supreme Court is over the age of 60. So no one will ever serve for longer than 10 years under their current practice. I was speaking with one of my, my friends who was a Supreme Court justice, private attorney, um, private firm, international business lawyer, and he said he had all of these ideas about coming on to the Supreme Court of Japan and changing the world for the better. There's 15 justices, they're cycling off. He said, my term was up before I could actually even make an impact. So the way that I think judges are trained, the way that they're treated, the way that they're rotated is completely different in Japan. So they really haven't faced that issue that we're looking into here in the United States. Thank you. Last question, yeah. Hello, um, I'm from Australia, which uh, has a, a legal tradition that is quite similar and indeed inspired by the one in the United States. And one of the, uh, I guess, cornerstone concepts in the Australian legal system is that of precedent. And um, I'm wondering, because I, you had talked about the changes in some of the Southeast Asian uh, systems, uh, in, indeed some rapid changes, uh, does the notion of precedent uh, feature in the Japanese legal system and, and what are the sort of um, views on the value or, or how precedent works in that system. Yeah, and that, that's an exceptional question in terms of, of your precedent and how that works. In, in Asia and most of the world, those countries are, are deemed to be civil law countries where you have, instead of common law, you know, case law that we have here in the United States, the law is based on the code. And so if you have a dispute, if you have a question, the idea is you go to the code, you look at it, your answer is going to be in that code. And so the next time that somebody comes before, well, we're not going to go back to that case because everything is contained in the code book. So we're going to go to the code and we're going to look at that that's right there. Now, in theory, that makes a lot of sense. But there's no way that any legislator anywhere in the world can put everything in a little book, or a big book in that case, right, that's going to respond to every dispute, every question, every crime, every transaction that has ever been there. And so, in principle, while Japan, South Korea are civil law countries, what you see is you see a lot of precedent that's actually creeping into the systems in those countries because they're looking for uniformity, they're looking for consistency, they're looking for fairness, they're looking for justice, right? Going back to what we were talking about here. And so how do you do that if yesterday you have a court that looked at the exact same question and today you've got another court looking at that exact same question, they come out differently. Right? So in Japan, with their quasi-jury trial, what's happened is, is all these juries are coming out with different sentences. So you've got the, the guilty, but somebody who committed sexual assault is getting 10 years in this case, but they're getting two years in this case. And the judges went, stop, time out, because the judges 
were talking among themselves before and they could see what was going on, they just weren't going public with it. Now what's happened is they've come up with a database on their spreadsheet of what's going on around the country so you can see what the sentences are. And so as the, the citizen judges, together with the professionals, are deliberating, they'll bring up on the TV, hey look, two days ago we had a similar case up in Sapporo and this was what the sentence was we need to be close to that. And so it's interesting to see how precedent is creeping into the system in Japan. And conversely, here in the United States, how a lot of our laws are now becoming based on codes as opposed to common law. We've gone more and more to actual statutes and codes, much more so than before, and away from the precedent that you referred to. Thank you. Thank you. You know, uh, through this conversation, I, I'm reminded of something when I lived abroad, that uh, you can't declare one place better than the other. It's just different. Oh, absolutely it's not. It's just different. It's just different. And one of the things that I hope, maybe is the, even the takeaway from tonight, I hope that we will spend time looking at the way that others do it to see if we can find solutions from the way that people do things differently, because it actually might be a fit here for our system to make it even better. Perfect place to stop. Thank you, Matthew Wilson. Thank you all for being here tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you.